Father, thanks for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us through him, and thank you for this season where we get to remember his coming and remember uh, the humility with which he came, the way that he came to live a life in the flesh, the life that, that we're called to live but we fail at every single day. So thank you for him. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray uh, that as I teach that you would speak to and through me and through your word that we'd leave change today. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Um, he takes your word and he twists it and he distorts it and he accuses us and tempts us. So instead, might you bind him and instead work powerfully in our own hearts and reveal to us Jesus. We pray all this through him and because of him in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we start a new series, something kind of unique. We're going to look at Christmas according to a guy in the Old Testament who wasn't there for Christmas. A guy by the name of Isaiah. And some of these passages you're going to be familiar with because Isaiah was a prophet who lived about seven to 800 years prior to Jesus being born. And Isaiah has some of the most profound prophecies about Jesus' life that were made in all of the Old Testament. And what's amazing is that each prophecy that Isaiah made about the coming Messiah came true. It came true. Now, sometimes we look at those and we think, ah, but did they really come true? Or did Jesus just live his life in such a way that he kind of made it true? You know, like, was it like a self-fulfilling prophecy where he just lived it out so that it looks like he's the guy Isaiah was talking about? Well, I think I've shared some of you some of this with you before, but if you take the eight uh, uh, most uh, common prophecies out of the over 300 of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, right? And most of which are found in Isaiah. If you take those eight and you say, okay, what's the probability of those eight coming true in this one man? Because there really are some things predicted about the Messiah that he had no control over of. No control of. That's what I'm trying to say. I can't talk today. Like, where he was going to be born or when he was going to be born or uh, who his mom and dad were going to be. Was his mom going to be a vir- how, how could he have controlled any of that, right? Any of you pick any of those things who your parents were? I didn't, right? It's just, that's by God's design. Well, if you take some of those, those eight and line them up and see what's the probability of Jesus actually fulfilling those eight. Do you know what the probability is? I shared this with you just a few weeks ago. It's, it's one in 17, in, one in 10 to the 17th power. So one in one with 17 zeros after it. That's the, that's the odds that one man fulfilled just those eight, let alone the 300 prophecies made about him. And if that number, I don't even know what that number is. I don't know how to pronounce it other than I can write it out and count the zeros. But, but whatever that number is, if you want an idea of what that looks like in terms of just to get your mind around how big that number is, take the state of Texas, which is about six to eight times larger than the state of Indiana, and cover it two feet deep in silver dollars. And one of those silver dollars, I'm going to go into Texas, I'm going to mark one with an X on the back of it, and I'm going to throw it in the pile somewhere. And I'm going to put a blindfold on you and put you in a helicopter and fly you into Texas and fly over all of Texas and then let you reach out. I'm going to get low enough that you can reach out blindly wherever you'd like and grab one silver dollar. You can dig down deep. You can take it off the top. The odds of Jesus fulfilling just those eight are the same odds as you blindfolded picking out that one silver dollar with the X on the back of it in the entire state of Texas. That's one in 10 to the 17th 
power. It's incredible. And Isaiah is one of these guys who makes these prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. And all of them come true. Well, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, each week we're going to look at Christmas over the next four weeks according to Isaiah. And some of the prophecies he made about Jesus' coming. So turn to Isaiah chapter 7. If you have your Bible, Uh, but here's our key verse this morning is Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. It says this, therefore the Lord himself, Isaiah wrote, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. We're going to unpack this verse this morning, but before we do, you have to understand what's going on and why Isaiah even makes this prophecy. And it begins back in the beginning of chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read that together. But before we do, let me set this up a little bit. In that day in the Old Testament, we think of Israel and we think of just God's people, Israel, right? But if you know your Bible, you know. And if you don't, that's okay. I'm going to help you understand here. At a certain time in the Old Testament, uh, God's people began to rebel against him after Solomon was king. after, After he passed away, the kingdom of Israel became divided. And of the 12 tribes, the 10 to the north became one group, and the 2 to the south became another group. And the, 12, the 10 to the north became known uh, as, as uh, Israel, or Ephraim, or Ephraim, however you want to say his name. But that was the northern tribe, Israel. So sometimes, in, sometimes it's referring to just those 12 northern, 10 northern tribes. And then you hear of things written about Judah. Well, those southern two tribes became their own nation of Judah. And so the kingdom of God's people became split because of their disobedience. And in this northern kingdom of Israel, over time, over about 200 years or so, they had, longer than that, they had 17, 19 kings, 19 kings. And every one of those kings was wicked and rebelled against God. Well, the southern kingdom also had 19 and one queen, And most of them were pretty wicked too, but they had eight that were good. So here's what happens. God had made a promise way back in Deuteronomy that as God's people move into the land, he said, if you obey me, maybe you've made promises like this to your kids. If you obey me, life's going to go really good for you. If you listen to me and do what I say, life in this house is going to be fantastic. No problems. And that's what God says. When you come into this land, if you obey me, life for you is going to go really well. But if you disobey me, There's going to be consequence. There's going to be punishment. And specifically, I'm going to pull you out of this land. I'm going to pull you out. And you're going to forfeit the blessing that you had until you repent, until you turn. That's what repent means. And you come back to me, then I'll bring you back. Well, you can imagine between those two kingdoms, the northern kingdom had all the wicked kings. And so God's judgment will fall on them first. And they get taken away into captivity, into the land of Assyria. Well, not much longer, but... But 150 years later, the southern tribe, too, because of their wickedness and their disobedience, God said, if you do well, you you obey me, it'll go well for you. If you disobey, I'm pulling you out. And they, too, get taken into captivity into Babylon. Well, we're in this time before they're taken away into captivity where you've got the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. And that's when Isaiah is on the scene. He's on the scene Right before Israel, and right even as Israel gets taken, the northern kingdom gets taken away into captivity. And so here's how this plays out. 
As we read Isaiah chapter 7, there's a big war going on that's referred to by historians called the Syro-Ephraimite War. They're like, hey, that means a lot to me. Thanks. I'm glad to clear that up. Well, Syro, Syria, Ephraimite, Ephraim, or Israel. So Syria and Israel have come together, and they're actually not at war, but they're going to war together with one another in the 730s BC. And here's why they're in an alliance together. Because there's this guy to the east in the land of Assyria, a king, let me read his name to you, because otherwise I'll never pronounce it right, Tiglath-Pileser Third. Something like that. Pelazer, I never say it quite right. But anyway, he had some ambitions and he was ambitious to expand his kingdom. And guess what his eyes were set on next? Israel and Syria. So Syria and Israel joined together and they're going to stand against the Syrian king. And what they do is they're going to go to the southern tribes, to Judah, and they're going to with a heavy hand, say, you guys need to join us and fight the Assyrians because otherwise they're going to come and take us all. And that's the background of what's going on here. The Syrians and the Israelites are trying to get the Judites, get Judah to join them in battle against the Assyrians. But what we're going to find out is that their plans fail. So let's begin reading in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So this is the days of a guy by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz is currently the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So in his days, and not only in his days, but but we see who else was king. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah. So Pekah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Rezin and Pekah come to Ahaz, they come up to Jerusalem, and it's to the south, but it's up in elevation, so they say up. They go up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they couldn't mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, in other words, when Judah was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You ever been out in a grove of trees when the wind's blowing really hard and it's just shaking? Or in some of the wind, when I was in India, Hannah said you guys had some pretty nasty windstorms, right? And she said the whole house was just shaking. She thought the whole thing with the roof was going to blow off. Anybody else remember any of that a couple weeks ago? And they're so afraid when they hear these guys, Pekka and Rezin, are coming for them. They're afraid so much that they're just trembling, Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. You and Shir Jashub, your son. Hannah and I haven't told people what the name of our son's going to be. That one's on the list, just so you know. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Isaiah's curious because as a prophet, all of his kids have names that are really meaningful. And this one means a remnant will return. So remember, they're going to get taken into captivity, but... Isaiah prophesies by naming his son, saying, don't worry, a remnant is going to return back. God's going to be faithful to return him. But anyway, go out and meet Ahaz, God says to Isaiah. You and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, 
Here's what God's telling Isaiah. He says, Ahaz is out along the city wall where the water's coming into the city. He's checking that out. You need to go, go out and meet him there. Why do you suppose the king would be out checking the water supply into the city? We just read that he's scared, right? He's trying to make sure that if they get attacked, they're still going to have water and they're still going to make it. So God says to Isaiah, that's where he is. Go out and meet him there and take your son with you. And maybe take your son because his name will be a reminder to him that even if things get as bad as possible and you get taken away into captivity, God's going to be faithful to bring some people back. And he says, verse four, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. God says to Isaiah, tell Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. They're flamed out, in other words. They're, they're all bark and no bite. They're not going to hurt you. They, they look fierce. They look scary. They look terrifying. And by human standards, they probably are. But trust me, you're going to be okay. Don't fear. Just be quiet. Quiet your heart. Don't fear. Let, don't let your heart faint because of them. And here's why. He says, verse 5, because Syria with, with the frame the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you. Don't fear their evil. They're, they say they're going to let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Ahaz is afraid somebody else is going to be put in his place as king. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the Lord God, it shall not stand. Their plans shall not stand and they shall not come to pass. Isaiah, you go tell Ahaz that. Their plans, they're, they're not going to happen. Thus says the Lord. Now, when you hear that, God keeps his promises, every one. And if God says it's so, it's going to be so. And if he says those plans aren't going to happen, those plans are what? Not going to happen. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. In other words, within 65 years, they're going to be taken into captivity because of their disobedience. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a really powerful statement as we lead up to the prophecy Isaiah makes about the coming Messiah. Ahaz is shaking in his boots because terror is coming, right? I mean, imagine people from a distant land from far away are coming to, to conquer him and to take him out. They're his enemy, and they're going to set up a new king in his place. They're going to take over his kingdom, and he's afraid. So what does he do? He does what any one of us might do. He goes and he makes, tries to shore up the wall of the cities and make sure his water supply is okay. And all the preparations are made for war so that if they get attacked, they're going to make it. Reminds me of some of the terror we face today, right? I mean, uh, the attacks in Paris recently and other things that cause our hearts to, to sense uncertainty about what does the future hold? What, what in the world is going on? My youngest brother was actually in, in London and had plans to go to Paris for his job the next day after that happened. You can imagine talking to him, texting a little bit, the fear in his heart. It's likely the same type of fear that Ahaz had 
when he knows these guys are coming for him. But what does God say to him? Don't fear, it shall not come to pass. And and he, he ends with this. Because if you're not firm in your faith, you won't stand firm at all. Or if you're not firm in your faith, I cannot make you stand firm. That's a pretty powerful statement, both to Ahaz and to us. It, it reminds me of a mom with her little kid at the doctor. You take them to get an immunization, right? And they're waiting to get their shot. And what do you tell the little boy? Hold still. <laughs> if you don't hold still, this is going to hurt. And he's saying, like, it's going to hurt anyway. I saw the needle. I know it's going to hurt. No, but hold still. It's going to be worse if you don't just hold still. The same thing. It, Stand firm in your faith. Because if you don't, if you get terrified and you keep your eyes off of me, it's going to get so much worse. I can't make you stand firm if you don't stay firm in your faith. Like with the little kid, I, I can't help you with this if you don't hold still. And that's what he's saying to Ahaz. If you don't have faith, I cannot help you stand firm. We've used this definition of faith a lot. That faith is believing God's word. And then it's acting upon it. So it's not just believing it, but it's putting it into action, acting upon it. The tough part is no matter how I feel, because sometimes, let's be honest, we don't want to obey God's word. Ahaz, I'm guessing, is feeling terror. He's not so sure about this. But he needs to believe God's word and act upon it no matter how he feels because God promises a good result when we do that. Believing God's word, acting upon it no matter how I feel because he promises a good result and God says, if you stand, you've got to stand firm in your faith or I cannot help you stand firm. Well, you would think if you're Ahaz and you have a prophet come to you who's been known to prophesy for God, who's seen a vision of Jesus on his throne, who's, who's, who's known for this, and, and he comes to you, you'd think if, if I'm Ahaz, I would hope if I'm Ahaz, I would go, okay, you know what? I'm still terrified, but I'm going to trust God. I'm going to quiet my heart. I'm going to have faith so that that God can help me stand firm in it. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe his word. I'm going to act upon it, even though I don't feel like it, because he promises a good result. Sadly, that's not what Ahaz does. We learn elsewhere that Ahaz actually goes and forms an alliance with the Assyrian king. And instead of finding his hope from God, he finds his hope and his security in the king from Assyria. And, and basically he says to them, I'll partner with you and I'll deliver uh, Israel and Syria into your hands. Just leave us alone. <laughs> Just leave us alone. Well, that's what happens. We find out later and they get taken into captivity. But really Judah then just becomes a slave state of Assyria for a number of years because of his disobedience. I wonder what would have happened if Ahaz had actually just obeyed God and stood firm. I don't think any of these plans would have come to pass. Let's pick it up with that in mind in verse 10. Again, later, actually I'm reading from a different version than is on the screen, aren't I? Let me read from this one. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. Okay, so Ahaz doesn't believe Isaiah right away. So later, Isaiah goes back to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, God sends, God sends Isaiah to him and God says to Ahaz, hey, tell you what, if you don't believe, you don't believe me, pick out a sign. Pick out anything you want. 
It can be as high as heaven. It can be as deep as the dead. In other words, there's nothing off limits. Pick whatever you want for a sign. Ask for it to rain Oreos. Ask, ask for whatever you want. Ask for it and it, it'll be a sign to you. God said, wouldn't that be cool? And like you could, you could ask for that, for God to prove himself to you. Look at Ahaz's response. But the king refused. No, he said, I won't test the Lord like that. Or in other translations, it says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it sounds really pious on Ahaz's part, doesn't it? Like, man, Isaiah, Ahaz, he's such, a, he's such a spiritual guy. He doesn't even want to test God when God says, test me. But really, you know what's happening here is, is Ahaz is all show, and he's covering up for the fact that he's already put his trust in the Assyrian king and not in God. And he's like, I'm not, I won't put him to the test. And the truth is because he's already put his trust somewhere else. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. He had been addressing Ahaz, but now he's addressing, or he had been addressing Ahaz, now he's addressing all of Israel. One of the things that's curious here to help us understand this, and then I promise we're going to get to that prophecy. It's in the next verse. But originally when Ahaz is speaking to Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. He's speaking directly to him. But in verse 13, he switches to the whole people of Israel. And keep that in mind here as we read, and I'll explain it. The the royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well, Isaiah says. And he says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. In other words, if you're not going to pick a sign, God's going to give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, we read later in Matthew that Matthew actually quotes this as it relates to Jesus. But why is this a prophecy to Ahaz as he's waiting from battle? From you know, he, he's, he's fearful in battle 800 years prior. It seems like if God tells him, hey, pick a sign, Ahaz. And then Isaiah says, okay, you're not going to pick one? Fine, God will give you one. Here's what it is. Is this a sign? Isn't this a sign to Ahaz? Like, why? What happens here? That why? Why doesn't it happen for eight hundred years? Well, a couple things to understand in this sign. Um, one is in prophecy. Sometimes there's what we'll call a double fulfillment. There's a near term where it comes true, and there's longer into the future where something else about it, a more fuller understanding of it, comes true. And so in this day, we're not going to get into all this. I'm just going to mention it quick and we're going to move on. But I believe the near-term fulfillment of this for Ahaz was actually another son born to Isaiah. And Isaiah would have another son and it would be a sign to Ahaz that, hey, here's the deal. God's going to keep his promise and you should have trusted him. And now it's just simply not going to go well for you. That's the, that's the Cliff Notes version. But then also we find out in Matthew 800 years later that this was a sign of the Messiah because Matthew relates this as or interprets this as referring specifically to the birth of Jesus being born of a virgin. Now, when we come to a passage and you're not quite sure how to interpret it, you always look to the rest of scripture to make passages that aren't real clear, clear. And Matthew interprets it for us. So we know clearly that this is a prophecy about Jesus, even though in the near term, it was a prophecy for Ahaz 
and his disobedience. Ultimately, God uses it as a prophecy for the coming of Jesus. And so that's where we're headed this morning, is we're going to look at this prophecy in verse 14, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his and shall call his name Emmanuel. What I want you to see this morning is how Jesus comes. How Jesus comes. And first off, Jesus comes as a sign. Jesus comes as a sign. What's a sign? A sign something that points you to something else, right? You're, you come in the, in the building, maybe you're new this morning, maybe today's your first day here, and you came in and you're like, where do I go? And you might be looking around for signs to point you in a certain direction, to direct you somewhere. Well, that's one type of sign. Another sign is something that just reveals something to you, reveals some information to you, reveals here's what's happening to you. And, and that's what Jesus is, is he comes as a sign. Look at verse 7. First it was a sign to Ahaz, but also it's a sign to us. The, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And, and here's what that sign is. For those who have faith, it's a sign of hope. If you have faith, the sign of Jesus coming is a sign of hope. Why? It's a sign of hope because we know that Jesus is going to fix this mess of a world that we live in. And not only this mess of a world, but this mess of a heart that I have. And, and he's changing me and making me new. And I have hope in him. And, and Jesus comes as a sign of hope for those who have faith. But for those without faith, Jesus doesn't come as a sign of hope, but as a sign of judgment. He comes as a sign of judgment. Because he's the one, when he comes again, he will judge both the living and the dead. And the judgment won't be like we think, or like you see in the movies and you see on TV where... Uh, Boy, should you be saved? Should you be in heaven or not? Well, let's, let's put all your good things on the scale with your bad things and see if the good outweighs the bad. That's just not how it works. Because number one, there's more wickedness and evil in each of our hearts that, that would, the good would never outweigh the bad for one. And second, because the, the standard isn't relative to more good or, and less bad, but it's Jesus and it's perfection. So it's all good and no bad. And it's a sign of hope for those who believe because Jesus gives us his righteousness and he takes away our sin. But for those who don't believe, it's a sign of judgment because that scale will never come close to balancing. It'll always be the bad outweighing the good completely because of the wickedness of our heart and our sin. And it's a sign of judgment that we're going to be judged by him if we've never trusted him and spend eternity apart from him under his wrath in hell. And for Ahaz, let's go back to the near-term fulfillment of this. This was a sign of, it should have been a sign of hope for him if he had faith. Because God said, Ahaz, if you have faith, I'll make you stand firm. If you have faith, I can make you stand firm. But if you don't have faith, I can't make you stand firm. Well, he didn't have faith. So instead, and, and he goes to him, choose a sign. But he didn't have faith, so he didn't choose a sign. So Isaiah says, okay, well, then God's going to choose a sign for you. And here's what it is. The virgin will conceive, and there'll be a son. And for Ahaz, it was a sign of judgment because he had no faith. And it was a sign of judgment a few years later that everything that God said would happen would actually happen. And it would not go well for him because of his lack of faith. For us, that sign is Jesus. Have you trusted him? He comes as a sign. Second, Jesus comes in humility. Humility. 
He comes as a baby born to a virgin. He comes in humility, specifically as a baby born to a virgin. Now, how how much more humbly could Jesus have come? Scripture tells us Jesus is king, that Jesus is God. He's 100% God, 100% man. I've used this illustration a bunch of times, but I'll use it again. Jesus is the creator. When I was little, I used to love to build stuff with Legos. That's one of the things I'm looking forward to. Hannah joked the other day, we were looking at stuff. We have our, if you don't know, our first son is coming, uh, Lord willing, on Christmas Eve, right around there. And and so we're, we're getting excited about that. And she jokes around with me that you're going to have more fun playing with the toys than he is. <laughs> like, I can see it already. Like, you're going to be the one buying, like, blocks. And, like, and you're going to have more, you're going to be pushing him aside to play. Maybe. When I was little, though, that's what I would have done with my brothers. And if I'd have built Legoland in my living room, and I was going to come in as the creator and conqueror and king of Legoland, I would have written myself into the story, and I would have stepped into Legoland in charge. All bow down to Josh, the creator of Legoland, right? Jesus has that authority if he wants to. And one day, by the way, he will. He'll step back into his creation and he'll say, bow down. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But when he comes the first time, that's not how he comes. He comes as a baby, as an infant, not in charge and in control, but vulnerable at the mercy of his mother and father. And there's so much doctrinal importance of the virgin birth. I'll give you just three of them quickly. Um, One, it shows us that for Jesus to be born of a virgin, we've had health class. We know where babies come from, right? We don't need to cover that. So for him to be born of a virgin is clearly a miracle. But there's three key things that it shows. One is that the only way this is going to happen is if God intervenes. That just doesn't happen naturally. And it shows us that Jesus, whose name means salvation, salvation isn't from any of our efforts. It's totally from God's effort. You want to be saved? There's a sign. His name is Jesus. And he came as a baby born to a virgin. And he's your only hope. Salvation is only from the Lord. Number two, the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity. Because it's a virgin birth, we go, you know what? That's from God. But then we look at Jesus and he was born of a woman. So we go, but he's also a man. He's fully God and he's fully man. That's part of why he had to be born of a virgin. If he had been born in a natural way with an earthly father and an earthly mother, it would be hard for us to say, that's God, wouldn't it? But if he's born of a virgin, we go, okay, clearly there's something unique here going on. He's God. At the same time, if he came as God and he wasn't born of Mary, he could have come however he wanted. If he just descended on a cloud, we'd go, he's God. But I don't know how he relates to me as a man, as a woman. And so that that unity is a virgin birth. It helps us understand he's fully God and fully man. And third, it makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. We we inherit, guys, we, we inherit sin from our parents. Not like because of things they've done, but it's just, it's part of our nature. You can tell my mind is on kids because I keep doing illustrations with little kids today, right? But how many of you ever had to, Tom brought this up last Sunday. How many of you ever have to teach your child to to disobey? Did you have to teach him that? 
No, they just do it. Why? Because we're not inherently good. We're inherently sinful. We inherit that from our parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And we need somebody from outside of us to come and fix us. And that's what Jesus does. Well, Jesus breaks that chain by being born of a virgin and doesn't inherit a sinful nature. Now, how does that happen? (laughs) Sorry, I'm not going to be able to explain that to you because I don't know other than God intervened. Some say, well, clearly then the sin nature comes through the father, right? It's the guys. That's the problem. Well, I don't think that's true because Mary was a sinner too. She said she needed a savior. The Roman Catholic Church tries to explain it that, well, Mary was just without sin. She was, she was sinless. Eh, no. <laughs> because again, in Luke chapter 2, she, she says, I need a savior. So how that happens exactly, other than the fact that the Holy Spirit did it, and if God says it, it can be so. Amen? So Jesus comes as a sign, and he comes in humility, born as a baby to a virgin, and he comes to relate to us and to serve us, not to conquer us. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. Jesus comes in humility to be like us, to be our friend, to sympathize with us, to be our substitute on the cross. He comes in humility. Let's go back to Ahaz again. Ahaz had zero humility. If he had humility, he would have understood God, you're in control. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to, here's, here's a sign that I'd love for you to show me who you are and, and confirm my faith. But no, he goes, he doesn't have humility. He has pride. And he says, I don't need a sign. Thanks, but no thanks. I've already struck a deal with the Assyrian king. And it ended for him in judgment. But third, Jesus comes then to be with us. He comes as a sign, he comes in humility, and three, he comes to be with us. That's what that name, Emmanuel, means. It means God is with us. God is with us. Jesus, fully God, steps into human history, puts on flesh, becomes a man, and now God is with us. Literally, in John 1, it talks about Jesus uh, coming, he dwelt among us, right? That word actually means tabernacled, like he put on a tent, he put on flesh, and he's just camping out with us. He's here with us. Emmanuel means God is with us. Well, that was the sign, by the way, to Ahaz. When, when Isaiah says there'll be a, a son born to a virgin, she'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. It's going to remind you, Ahaz, that God was with you the whole time, but you never trusted him. And for us, we need to remember when Jesus comes, he's Emmanuel, he's with us. And not only with us in his coming, but with us always. When Jesus gives his commission to us uh, before leaving this earth and uh, ascending into heaven, he, he says at the end of Matthew, chapter, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he says, all authority, starting in verse 18, actually, all authority is on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, behold, pay attention. Pay, look, pay attention. Behold, I'm with you 
always. Emmanuel, always, even to the end. Loved ones, Jesus came as a sign to us of hope for those with faith and of judgment to those without. Have faith, trust him. He came in humility as God in the flesh to relate to us and to serve us. And finally, he came to be with us. Would you trust him? Would you turn to him in repentance and in faith? He longs for that for you. He longs to be with you and to save you. Behold, he's with you always, even to the end. Amen? Tell you what, let's pray. We'll take our offering. Uh, We'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Thanks that he comes as a sign to us to uh, confirm our faith and to give us hope that that as the angel said when he ascended, he's going to come and return in the same way that he left. And he's going to come and finish what he began, that uh, he's not going to leave us as orphans, but he's going to come and get us to take us to be with him. Father, we look forward to that day of restoration. I pray for those without faith this morning, that they would choose faith, that they'd choose to trust your son, so that that sign, when he comes again, wouldn't be a sign of judgment to them, but of hope. Thank you, too, that he comes in humility, uh, both as our example and as our advocate, that, that we don't have to worry about him not understanding our life or what we're going through. He understands it all. He's been tempted in every way like we have been. Help us to trust him. And Father, thank you finally that he's simply with us the whole of every moment. Remind us of that each day. Give us hope and uh, joy in that. And most of all, help us to not be like Ahaz, but instead in the midst of uncertainty or whatever is facing us in life, to look at Jesus as our sign and to have faith, trusting you so that you would make us to stand firm. Father, we love you. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.